1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've uh, got a great show for you today, including great guests. William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute, will be joining us. Sean Higgins, uh, our Research Associate with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, will be talking about uh, unionizing uh, the help on Capitol Hill. James Carafano is vice president of the Catheter Shelby Column Davis Institute of National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be getting the clear idea of what's happening right now in Ukraine. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston is space architecture, author of many books. His latest is he co-authored with uh, uh, Buzz Aldrin, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. It is February the 25th, and on this day in 1964, 24-year-old or 22-year-old Cassius Clay shocked the oddmakers by dethroning world heavyweight boxing champ Sonny Liston in the seventh round of a technical knockout. The dreaded Liston, who had twice demolished former champ Floyd Patterson in one round, was an 8-1 to favorite. However, Clay predicted victory by boasting he would float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, and knocked out Liston in the eighth round the fleet-footed and loquacious youngster, who would later become known as Muhammad Ali, needed less time to make good on his claim. listening complained of an injured shoulder, failing to uh, answer the seventh-round bell. A few moments, moments later, of course, he was crowned as heavyweight champion. Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. was born in Louisville, Kentucky, in 1942. He started boxing when he was 12, and by age 18, it had amassed a record of over 100 wins in amateur competition. In 1959, he won the International Gold Gloves Heavyweight Championship title and in 1960, a gold medal in the light heavyweight category at the Summer uh, Olympics in Rome. Clay turned professional after the Olympics and went undefeated in his first 19 bouts, earning him the right to challenge Liston, who had defeated Floyd Patterson in 1962 to win the heavyweight title. On February 25, 1964, a crowd of 8,300, gathered at the convention hall arena in Miami Beach to see if Cla- Cassius Clay, who was nicknamed the Louisville Lip, could put his money where his mouth was. Uh, the provided no bragging fraud, and he danced and peddled and away from Liston's powerful swings while delivering quick and punishing jabs to Liston's head. Liston hurt his shoulder in the first round, injuring some muscles as he swung and missed his elusive target. By the time he decided to discontinue the bout between the 6th and 7th rounds, he and Clay were about equal in points. A few conjectured that Liston faked the injury and threw the fight, but there's no real evidence that such that actually happened. And uh, to celebrate the win, the world champion title heavyweight channel, title, Clay went to a private party at Miami Hotel where he attended was attended by his friend Malcolm X, an outspoken leader of the African-American Muslim group known as the Nation of Islam. Two days later, markedly more constrained and restrained, Clay announced he was joining the Nation of Islam and defended the world's uh, Organization's concept of racial segregation while speaking of the importance of a Muslim religion in his life. Later that year, he was uh, the descendant of uh, <clears throat> former, uh, formerly enslaved persons. He rejected the name originally given to him by his family which and uh, changed it to Muhammad Ali. Ali uh, would go on to become one of the 20th century's greatest sports figures, as much for his social and political influence as his prowess in his chosen sport. After successfully defending his title nine times, it was stripped from him in 1967 after a refused induction in the U.S. Army on the grounds that he was a Muslim and a minister, minister, therefore a conscientious objector. That year, he was sentenced to five years in prison for violating the Selective Service Act, but was allowed to remain free as he appealed the decision. His popularity plummeted, but many across the world applauded his bold stand against the Vietnam War. In 1970, he was allowed to return to the boxing ring, and the next year, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Ali's draft evasion conviction. In 1974, he regained his heavyweight title in a match against George Foreman in Zaire and successfully defeated a, and defended it in a brutal 15-round contest against Joe Frazier, the thriller in Manila in the Philippines. The following year in 1978, he lost the title to Leon Spinks, but later that year defeated Sphinx in a rematch, making him the first boxer to win the heavyweight title three times. He retired in 1979, but returned to the ring twice in the 80s. In 84, he was diagnosed with pugilistic Parkinson's syndrome and had suffered a uh, slow decline of his motor functions ever since. He was inducted to the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990. In 96, he lit the the Olympic flame, as the opening ceremonies of the Summer Games in Atlanta. Uh, his daughter Lila, became a boxing uh, boxer and debuted in 1999. At a White House ceremony on November uh, in November 2005, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And on June the third, 2016, he passed away after a period of failing health. Muhammad Ali, I'll never forget those ringing words. I am the greatest. He truly was. Well, explosions have heard from the Ukrainian Ukrainian capital of Kiev early Friday as Russian forces pressed on with full-scale invasion that resulted in the deaths of more than 100 Ukrainians in the first full day of fighting and could eventually uh, rewrite the global post-war security order. There were repeated reports overnight that the city's air defense stopped an air raid by intercepting a number of missiles and downing enemy aircraft. With social media amplifying a torrent of military claims and counterclaims, it was difficult to determine exactly what was happening on the ground. And When they speak about the fog of war, this is certainly the case here because there's a lot of conflicting information going out there. Russia and Ukraine made competing claims about damage that it inflicted. Russia's defense ministry said it had destroyed scores of Ukrainian air bases, military facilities, and drones. It confirmed the loss of one of its Su-25 attack jets, blaming pilot error, and said a 26-transport uh, plane had been crashed near the uh, because of technical failure, killing the entire crew, and it didn't say how many were aboard. Russia said it was not targeting cities, but journalists saw destruction of many civilian areas, uh, we'll get uh, some clarity on this later from Army veteran and West Point graduate James Carafano from the Heritage Foundation. It will be interesting to hear his con- comments on what's happening uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Well, Collier County commissioners are taking up crucial steps towards just dealing with the worsening affordable housing crisis in Collier County by encouraging more options. Uh, in a series of unanimous decisions, the board voted to encourage the development of low-cost housing in varying ways. They agreed the county could uh, needs to swiftly identify land and free up millions in reserves generated by a one-cent local option sales tax, surtax tax, for uh, capital projects. That currently is in place. It was voted in, I think it runs for seven years. That's one of the two immediate actions staff recommended the board take to provide $20 million in a one-time funding for this project. There's no question that uh, one of the ways we could solve the affordable housing uh, crisis here in Collier County would be to simply see uh, housing drop precipitously in value. Well, we don't want that. So uh, clearly there are some things that could be done, but it's really treacherous territory because you're starting to then see government uh, meddling in private enterprise. And uh, that can be a big problem. Hopefully, they'll make good decisions about this and and, uh, restrain government involvement as much as possible in free markets and uh, real estate. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis and State Surgeon General Joseph Lopato announced significant changes to Florida's COVID-19 guidance, including pushing back on unscientific corporate masking, reducing isolation for all Floridians, including those in schools and daycares, and recommending that physicians should exercise their individual clinical judgment and expertise based on their patients' needs and preferences. And boy, is that important. I'm so pleased to see the governor and the Surgeon General act on this. People want to live freely in Florida without corporate masking, creating a two-tier society, and without overbearing isolation for children, said Governor DeSantis. We're empowering healthcare practitioners to follow the science, not Fauci's status quo. That from the governor, public health agencies in Florida now include pushing back updates. These are updates, pushing back against corporate masking for employees. You yeah, know, we were at the uh, Naples Grand for the Hillsdale College event and, uh, of course, uh, being served. Nobody there had a mask on except, of course, the employees. Well, they, uh, Governor DeSantis would like to see that change. And so he's created this public health update, update to see that that would happen, or at least uh, – it also advising healthcare practitioners and facilities to reevaluate status quo protocols in favor of scientifically based treatment options to benefit patients now hopefully this would include the reconsideration for oxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine and as well as uh, ivermectin as possible treatments and therapeutics for covid updating daycare guidance to limit child isolation to five days, updating the uh, school rule to limit student isolation to five days, and reducing isolation for Floridians for COVID uh, to five days. All positive steps. The state of Florida has widespread natural vaccine-induced immunity, said Surgeon General General Dr. Joseph Lopato. Evidence suggests that most secondary transmission occurs early on, our state will continue to make decisions for Floridians rooted in sound science, not fear, whether they are working at work or in school. Just really great news uh, from, again, more good news, more good decision-making uh, from our governor and his staff. By the way, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, provided an updating their guidance. They're update their guidance today. It's created new metrics to determine when people should mask up, according to a new report by Axios. Uh, the agency will move away from uh, case counts and concentrate on hospitalizations and hospital capacity in its new mask guidance. Didn't say anything about therapeutics, didn't say anything about the isolation and all those types of things. So, well, the problem here is, of course, when the many businesses just Mindlessly follow the guidance of the CDC as if they had some credibility here. Quite frankly, uh, what Joseph Lapado, the uh, Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Lapado, Lapado, and Governor DeSantis recommend; those are, I think, good recommendations, and we should follow their science, not the science that's made up uh, by the CDC. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service. 4541
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Sean Higgins. He's a research associate with the uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Right now we have with us William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me on, Bob.
1: Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the uh, Cato Institute.
3: You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government.
1: Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Very robust website. I hope you check it out. So, William, I'm going to talk a little bit later about what's happening globally, but right now I'd like to focus on what's happening on Capitol Hill now, I understand that uh, Biden is still pushing for some money for uh, COVID relief.
3: Indeed. Uh, so earlier this week, um, he came hat in hand to Congress asking for another 30 billion dollars. Um, now, most of this money was, in fact, I guess, for uh, COVID oriented spending, I mean, vaccination and testing although there were some social uh, measures included in there, including mm. uh, uh, public health insurance. Um, and even though $30 billion, I guess, is a drop in the bucket compared to the $6 trillion that has already gone out the door from Capitol Hill for uh, various COVID stimuli, um, his proposal landed with a thud on Capitol Hill. There was bipartisan pushback and um, seemingly uh the, you know it went nowhere quick and uh would the takeaway and i guess it's somewhat of a happy one is that there appears to be just zero appetite on capitol hill um for any more big time government spending in the name of co- uh in the name of this uh, global pandemic um that they they are keen on the fact that the six trillion dollars again that's already gone out the door um perhaps has had an inimical effect upon inflation so that, that dawning, that realization on Capitol Hill, even if late, um, I, I do think is a uh, uh, you know somewhat of a positive
1: development. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The president has continued the emergency uh, s- situation here in the United States uh, f- uh, past. I guess it was March 1st was the end of, end of it. It's kind of strange because so many people are just dropping uh, the. Um, COVID measures, masking, lockdowns, those types of things across the nation. Certainly not, uh, not not Biden, though. He's staying with it and still promoting the idea of uh, spending money on it.
4: Indeed.
3: Well, I'll just note this briefly. An emergency is a friend uh, of power, mm-hmm. um, which is to say, you know, as long as they can point to a time of crisis and they can justify expansive exercises of, exec- of executive authority, so Um, I don't think it's coincidental that this administration is reluctant to to lift the emergency, if you will.
1: Yeah. So um, we're also uh, waiting for uh, Biden's decision about the Supreme Court uh, justice pick, uh, who he's going to select. It's going to be a black woman, apparently, is, is his choice. Any progress on that?
3: Indeed, so that's a uh, big news this morning. The uh, New, York, New York Times reported last night that Biden has come to a decision, um, and the speculation is that he's chosen uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson of the D.C. Circuit Court. And the, the reason that this rumor is, is is going around right now is that the D.C. Circuit, in an unusual move, issued an opinion. Yesterday on Thursday instead of Friday, which is when they normally do it, Hmm. and uh, something similar happened when uh, Justice Kavanaugh um, was appointed, uh, was nominated to become a Supreme Court justice um, during the Trump administration. So I'll say this: it's very surprising to me that if indeed these rumors are correct, the speculation is correct, and they went with Judge Jackson um, just because the the Judge Michelle Childs out of South Carolina. Um, Not only did she have the support of Representative Clyburn, who was instrumental in uh, President Biden's ascension to the White House. I mean, if your listeners will recall, Mm -hmm. Biden was dead in the water during the primaries, and it was really only due to the singular efforts of Representative Clyburn that South Carolina went for Biden and ultimately that he clinched the nomination. Um, Not only that, but uh, she enjoys the wholehearted support of the Republican senator. From South Carolina, uh, the the senior senator Lindsey Graham. So, it, it seems like she would have been a, 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 a pretty safe choice, I guess, and the a, 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 a logical choice, if you will.
4: Mm-hmm. And I
3: think if it does turn out that it is uh, the Judge Jackson that he's gone with, and to be sure, she's highly qualified, has wonderful credentials, but. Um, I think it would demonstrate sort of the power that the progressive wing of the Democratic Democratic Party has over the president. Um, you know, that notwithstanding if this is ultimately how it plays out, mm-hmm. um, Judge Judge Childs would have made a, a lot of sense on a number of fronts. And and by going with Judge Jackson, if that's what he ultimately does, she was the progressive's favorite choice, and that would seem to be a concession to um, to I guess the influence of of. Progressive voices within his administration.
1: Well, so you mentioned that uh, Jackson is a prudent judge and and yet also a favorite of the progressives. Can you tell us more about that? Any any reason why progressives would prefer her?
3: Well, you know, I'll I'll say this: uh, with a lot of this progressive activism, and you know, some a lot of activism in general, um, there's not necessarily the best uh, reasoning and going into it. Um, I think she had experience as a public defender, which they found to be particularly attractive. And, ah. and I should note here that I am a, a proponent of, of greater diversity of backgrounds. I mean, you know, I, I, as of now, the federal bench is dominated by prosecutors. And I, I think that um, or former prosecutors. Um, and I, I think there is something to be said for, for having more public defenders on the bench. Mm. Um, but that is... a. Uh, um, that's what I would guess as to why the progressives favored her. But to be perfectly honest with you, I mean, there's often not a lot, not not a lot of rhyme or reason when it comes to what the progressive base wants.
1: All right, so interesting. Before I let you go, uh, any comments at all about a couple of? Uh, uh, DA's investigators in New York uh, jumping ship and uh stopping the investigation with Trump. I guess that's going to I don't know where it stands right now, but uh, apparently they were key people in making this uh, investigation go forward.
4: They
3: were indeed. So this is the uh uh you know, the United States federal investigation out of the, the District Attorney's office of Manhattan and Trump's uh, uh, purported tax malfeasance. Um, but the big news here, I would say, yes, the, these two gentlemen, it's a uh, Carrie Dune and a Mark Pomerantz, um, resigned. But I would say that the, even the bigger story, and this, this came out in the New York Times just this week, um, that was part and parcel of these resignations, was that the grand jury investigation has been stalled for the past month. Um, and so your listeners may have heard this famous aphorism in the law that. Um, A grand jury will indict a sandwich, uh, or a hand sandwich, uh, which is to say that if the grand jury deliberations have stalled, you know, as reported. Then that is a strong indication that there is uh, uh, insufficient grounds, or that this this thing is not going to proceed much further. Um, which you know, again, I, I would imagine that prosecutorial resources are better spent elsewhere than mm. looking into the tax write-offs of a former president. So uh, it, it was a fairly interesting news on that front. Not just the resignation, but sort of I would say almost comical failure of that investigation to yeah. uh, uh, proceed to the grand jury process.
1: And I, I guess they they assumed that, that he was overvaluing his assets. It turned out that he was undervaluing his assets, according to the, the story that I heard. So, <laughs> so <laughs> oh, interesting. Well. W- William Yeatman, again, William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having
1: me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Sean Higgins, Research Associate at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Bob
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, building a 44,000-square-foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. going to be beautiful and also bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, professor at the University of Houston. Right now we have with us Sean Higgins. He's a research associate with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Sean, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure, indeed. Sean, tell us about the Competitive Enterprise Institute.
2: We're a think tank in Washington, D.C. We specialize in free market issues, um, mostly uh, economic-related.
1: Terrific organization. I think the website is cei.org, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. Cei.org. So, Sean, you wrote an interesting piece on the Hill. It's all about uh, Congress, considering... Uh, unionizing their staff. That could be an interesting project. Maybe you can tell us about it.
2: Yeah, um, well basically it wasn't so much the the, the congressman who's, who's been proposing this as the staff has. You may re- recall that during the uh, last election a bunch of uh, c- uh, campaign staffers uh, made efforts to organize. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that was interesting simply from the perspective of campaign staffs are temporary by definition. So by the time you would get to around to writing a collective bargaining agreement, the campaign would probably be over anyway. But a campaign staff is much more permanent. And a lot of the Democratic staffers, you know, think to themselves, well, our bosses keep going on and on about how great unions are and how all workers should have them. Why shouldn't that include us? And that's basically what's happened.
1: Uh, so interesting. And it could be a rude awakening. I'm kind of interesting in, in the wake of a Supreme Court decision, if I'm not mistaken, about uh, – uh, federal employees or public uh, unions that uh, they weren't required and necessarily to become union members if they didn't want to. Is, does that splash on this at all?
2: Um, a little bit, but for the most part, um, exactly how you organize um, congressional staffers is a bit of a, an issue itself because it, there's there's no precedent for it. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear, for example— Um, who would represent them, uh, whether you would have one union to represent uh, all staffers, whether it would be distinct by parties. There's a lot of questions and stuff that would have to be involved in this and that nobody quite knows how it would go.
1: Yeah, so big implications, though, because uh, right now, uh, you know, they have budgets. They they have to stay within a budget in order to uh, hire staff. There's a lot of different things that play into this. I think they have a lot more leeway, could be a real – uh, cold water in the face for us, uh, for a congressman to find out how this all works.
2: Yeah, I mean that's one of the things is when you look at like the d- demographics for people who uh, you know are lawmakers in Congress. One of the things is very quickly obvious is that for most of them, politics is basically their whole career. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some who obviously um, have had other jobs and other professions, but for the most part, they've never been in a management position where they've had to actually negotiate a contract, and they don't literally know what's involved most of the time so i think this would be a fascinating case example where once you put somebody under the law you know, make somebody subject to the law that they're passing they often have a very different perspective on the law
1: yeah so interesting and of course there's also this uh i think there was a funding to, uh, to uh, cover up sexual <laughs> approaches and uh, malfeasance on the part of congressmen i mean i think they could also uh, create maybe a, a lot more freedom and transparency in what's happening in congress
2: Yeah, I mean, if there's a grievance process where any sort of staffer can can, uh, make a complaint about a congressman, and it has to be sort of made public in that sort of way, that's something that a lot of lawmakers are going to say, wait a minute, just anybody can do this, we need to think about this a bit more, which is something that they're not really saying currently with the way they're suggesting these laws. And it's not necessarily to say that, you know, that's a good idea or a bad idea, but The point is you want people to have more experience with the laws that they're passing. And that's one of the reasons why I thought, in a limited way, this this may actually be a good thing if it were to come to pass. Mm
1: -hmm. So interesting indeed. Uh, And yet most, uh, if I'm not mistaken, most staffers don't stay there a long time. It's usually getting that experience and then moving on to other positions and other opportunities in Washington.
2: It depends. I mean, you have some who are there for, yeah, as you say. They basically they're sort of dusting up their resume, but you have others who are there for long for long term um you know who are there with the lawmaker pretty much you know as long as the lawmaker is mm-hmm. so it depends varies from staffer to staffer to staffer which is one of the other interesting issues because you'll have the people who you know have had the, the union for a long time and then you have new people who come in who find themselves subject to whatever the union's rules are when they didn't have any chance or opportunity to um contribute to it, which is one of the other sort of aspects of collective bargaining that needs, I think, a bit more attention. And it's the fact that a lot of workers don't really have a whole lot of say on the rules that they're under. And I think this is another one way in which, if it happens at congressional level, you start seeing more cases of people saying, wait a minute, you know, why should I be subject to this rule? I never had a chance to weigh in on this
1: in the first place. Yeah, so interesting, Sean. All right, so it's just taking a step back, what are the what's the likelihood that this is going to transpire?
2: Um. Probably pretty slim, um, in all all honesty. It's one of those things where it's gotten some talk, and it has been endorsed by uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer, but it's going to require a change in congressional rules um, for it to happen, and that's going to require broad Republican support Most Republicans have a certain jerk opposition to anything that is labeled as pro-union. And truth be told, a lot of Democrats really don't want this to pass, precisely because they don't want to have to deal with this on their own. They're perfectly happy passing these laws and making other people subject to it. But when it comes to making those subject to their own rules, they get a bit—they get cold feet on it.
1: Yeah, there's a nice stream of income coming in for any kind of public service union. Uh, I see you and others. Uh, is any—is any union promoting this or backing it or working on it?
2: Well, yeah, there is a variety of. Um, Public sector unions that uh, uh, you know would stand to benefit from this. There's uh, like the American Federation of Government Employees and a few others. Um, and, and one thing that also should be pointed out is a union's name is not necessarily reflective of who it represents. It's, there's no law that says like the United Auto Workers can only represent auto workers. So it would be sort of up for grabs almost, and pretty much any union could try to try to represent them. There are uh, there are, you know, non-profit staffers who are represented by service employee unions, for
1: example. Perfect. Sean Higgins, again, research associate at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. CEI.org is the website. I hope you check it out. Terrific organization, CEI.org. Sean, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks again for having me.
1: My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, am going to visit with James Carafano, and I'm so pleased that we're able to get James on the show. Uh, he's uh the uh, vice president for foreign policy and uh, national security at the heritage foundation he's right now at cpac so hope happy to uh, be able to get a little bit of his time and perhaps uh, just opine a little bit about what's happening in ukraine and uh, our strategy and all those some of the other things that are going on so we're going to do that and more right here in the bob hardin show on the bob hardin broadcasting network
0: Or of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
1: Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees.
0: Show and now here's your host Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. Right now, we have with us James Garofano. James, as I mentioned before the break, is the national security and foreign policy. Uh, Vice President for the Heritage Foundation. James, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you, James. Tell us about the Heritage Foundation.
5: So, uh, Heritage Foundation is a, a think tank, and I, I know a lot of people go, well, what's, what's that? Doesn't everybody think? But we <laughs> you know, we develop uh, public policy, and as a conservative think tank, it, as you would guess, is our goal is to keep America free, safe, and prosperous, and and you don't get credit for two out of three, but I think where we differ than a lot of think tanks is, is it's not just a bunch of folks sitting in a, a bunch of rooms, writing a you know bunch of papers. We think about, well, what is, what's the best thing for this country? And then how do we get that done? Whether it's working with allies or the federal government or at the state and local level. And then we work to do that and we keep at it till we, till we get it done. So it's, it's awesome. Uh, you know, I was in the military for, for 25 years and I, i've been in heritage now almost 20 years and the, and the reason why is i i get that same sense of serving my nation and having a mission and uh, working with brothers and sisters who are as committed as i am trying to do stuff for this country it's com it's uh it's the only think tank the only major think tank that's completely donor funded yeah so we don't take money from governments we we we, we uh Actually, you know, most like ninety-seven percent of our funding comes from individual people giving money to Heritage because they think we're going to save the world and and uh, and save America, and, and we're committed to
2: doing that for
1: them. Well, thank you, James, and absolutely. I mean, I'll point out also, you're a West Point graduate and had a very distinguished career in the military, and I can't think of a better voice to uh, it, talk about what's going on right now and. Ukraine. And in fact, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to discern what's going on because of a lot of claims, counterclaims, uh, social media, all kinds of things going on. I'd like to uh, just find out your assessment of what's going on and then maybe take a step back and talk about our policy and how you believe it's, uh, it's uh, affecting the outcome.
5: Sure. So uh, having, you know, watched a lot of wars and, and studied a lot of wars, uh, it, it's always very, very difficult not even if you're actually on the battlefield kind of making sense of this, we know it's a full-blown war. I mean, literally the Russians have thrown everything in it but the kitchen sink. Mm. And at the end of the day, they, they'll probably annex half the country uh, and, and put in a rump government on the other half that they can control. That, uh, and, and we know the Ukrainians are fighting and, and, uh, in a pretty determined way. Um, beyond that, uh, I, I don't think there's much that we conclusively know.
1: Yeah. James, uh, in terms of our strategy and our expectations, it seems to me that, uh, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know why we have such a heavy, big stake in this. I know we want to protect uh, rule five and and NATO, but, uh, uh, it seems to me that the uh, president Putin has, uh, has some claims in, in the situation there. In other words, I think we ought to take a look at his side of the story too. Yeah. I, I don't,
5: I don't actually see it that way. Look, um, First of all, this is not about Ukraine. Uh-huh. You know, fundamentally, my concern is America and America's interests and, and the safety of our citizens. Uh, Putin's ultimate goal is not just to reconquer Ukraine, but to absorb all the post-Soviet states, have dictatorial control over censor Europe, have NATO dissolved, drive the United States out of Europe, and isolate the United States. Which, by the way, is his biggest fan is China, because yeah. that's what China wants. China wants a weakened and divided Europe and an isolated. United States, so the the stakes on this are are, are very 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 high. Yeah, uh, Putin's claims are completely fatuous. I've been to Ukraine. I've been all over Central Europe. There's 44 million Ukrainians. Many of them are ethnic Russians. Um, they may have a lot of different ideas, but but nobody wants to live in a world run by Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
5: uh, even the Central Europe, some Central European states, which which say, "Hey, we need to trade with this guy. We need to live with this guy." They don't want to be ruled by that guy. Yeah, um, and and so they're they're fighting for their freedom and their independence. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's something we as Americans could can respect. But but Putin has to be stopped at some point.
1: Uh,
5: um, this is forty four million people. Yeah, uh, there's there's millions more behind them who'll be at risk. So uh, you know, again, nobody thinks the United States is going to fight a war in Ukraine. They're not a treaty ally. We have no obligation to do that. Um, that's just the way the facts are, but to be indifferent to Putin's aggression, I gotta tell you, that's as dangerous today as ignoring what Hitler was doing uh, in the 1930s in Europe.
1: Well thanks for that, Uh,
5: And I I mean it that seriously.
1: I understand. So uh, tell us, uh, our posture has been, the President said he's going to impose sanctions, He's, he's done that. He's not imposing sanctions, by the way, on Putin himself. Uh, But he says he also said that, well, the sanctions probably aren't going to have much effect. What should our posture do? What should the president of the United States do? What should he be saying?
5: Yeah, well, there's a there's an irony about the sanctions because they were they were quick to always criticize Trump for sanctions. And then literally the only thing they they have in their toolkit is apparently sanctions. But the difference is Trump understood what sanctions report. Sanctions are not to deter and, and they're useless to punish. These guys can always find ways to get money. What, what sanctions are only useful for is to deny your adversary resources to do to do stuff with. Mm-hmm. And and if you want, if if Biden had properly understood that, then he would have hammered them with sanctions months ago. Um. So and and sanctions are just one tool. Look. there's no do-overs in history. We we are where we are. There's nothing really much that we can do about the war in Ukraine today. But we have to ask ourselves, how do we stop Putin? Because that's really what is in our interest. And there's only two things that make Putin relevant. He has a very powerful military and he sells people out of energy. Mm -hmm. And so if we have adequate strategic and conventional deterrence, if we have the military that we need and, and we insist that the allies do their part, and remember, Biden has come in with, with budgets that, that, that don't even pay the bills. I mean, they don't even meet the cost of inflation. So we have to get serious about our defense, not fighting wars, but demonstrating like we did under Ronald Reagan, the, the, the idea of peace through strength, be so tough that people won't want to come after you. And so if we, if we do that, and we become energy independent, mm. then Putin's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. He, we could checkmate him. He's useless. He can't really threaten anybody. But until... We, and not just the United States, but the transatlantic community, makes that step. Putin will be a great aggressor, and the beneficiary of that will be China, because not only will they distract, but they will weaken and undermine our capacity to defend ourselves and to prosper. And that is incredibly dangerous.
1: You know, our commitment to the green energy policy and uh, what we're doing right now with the unplugging of the Keystone Pipeline, these things have just led to a total disaster, not only in terms of energy prices here at home, but also in terms of our strength around the world. Absolutely.
5: It's completely self-destructive. Yeah. But this is, I, and, and again, I'm not partisan because I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not even a Republican. Um, and I, I, I'm not, I don't have any party affiliation. And. I work for a nonpartisan think tank, so mm. when I say this, it's not meant to be a political criticism, but the reality is, is this administration has come into office conceptually, much in the way of the Obama administration, to do what is in, the, what is in their best political interest, as opposed to what is in the best nation's interest. Now, nobody cares about your politics, but they, we do when they contravene what's actually good for Americans. Right. And... The climate agenda is a political agenda. It's about getting political control over the country. It's not about making the world a better place and having a better climate. Look, we need reliable, affordable, abundant energy. We can do that and be responsible uh, stewards of the environment. But but they don't care. That's not what they want to do. Right. They want absolute political control. And it's the same reason why we are having all these disasters in foreign policy. They don't want to do foreign policy. They don't care about that. They don't care about America first. For them, it's the progressive agenda first and America last.
1: Yeah, well, so well said. Uh, one thing, though, uh, the, uh, apparently Putin's big concern is the fact that uh, there's been encroachment by NATO over the last 20 years. Uh, if, in fact, uh, we said, OK, let's make uh, uh, Ukraine neutral, let's uh, just have Yeah, some...
5: so look, I mean, this is nonsense. First of all, um, NATO didn't encroach. Uh Uh, NATO enlarged, and it enlarged because free and independent nations joined the alliance. And it wasn't a strategy of NATO to encroach on Russia. These were countries that said, we want to be part of NATO. And they wanted to be part of NATO for a reason, because they were afraid of Vladimir Putin and afraid of being invaded. And they knew that under the NATO umbrella, they were much safer. NATO's not an offensive alliance. It's never threatened Russia. Um, And so that's a complete... You know that this somehow is a threat to fabrication. look the last state to join um, to join NATO is hundreds of miles from Russia, yeah and many of these countries are actually quite tiny and the notion that somehow that northern Macedonia becoming a member of NATO is a threat to Russia is utterly laughable so this is, this is a manufactured narrative look russia here's the irony: Russia was at its safest in the 1990s mm-hmm. when NATO enlargement was at its greatest extent hmm. Because Russia had stable, quiet neighbors that had no interest in attacking them, and and would do business with Russia, so NATO enlargement was actually good for Russia because it gave them good, stable neighbors yeah. that they could do business with. So somehow that 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 Russia's been threatened by by NATO is it's, it literally is complete nonsense.
1: So interesting, James Carafano again uh, the. Uh, Vice President of National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Heritage.org is the website. James, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much I, for joining us.
5: I so appreciate your time, and I appreciate what you do. You have such a great show. And the fact that you have people on, and you dialogue, and you let people of different opinions, talk about stuff, I just think that's so valuable and important. So thanks for what you do.
1: Oh, thank you so much, James. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell, Endowed Professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show and the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: You have questions about your retirement?
0: back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board, among other things, providing policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the thefga.org. thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture, the author of many books, his latest co-written by, uh, with Buzz Aldrin, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, good morning, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure, Professor. Uh, Of course, you write On Point, which is your column in Newsmax.com, which I highly recommend. I hope our listeners will go to Newsmax.com and check it out. Uh, Before we talk about the Dems' demise, your latest column, uh, any comments and thoughts about Ukraine and what's going on? Yeah, I have an
4: article that's coming out this morning, and uh, it's really focused on, you know, I think— Ukraine, of course, is really a tragedy and it's very frightening. But you think of how much is centered on this craziness about climate and oil and how, as you look at the uh, the developments, so much of it has to do with uh, really the stranglehold that uh, Russia has on Europe with energy. And, and again, so much of this is because of their really terrible climate decisions you know germany built all of these wind turbines and then they schroeder and merkel shut down all their nuclear facilities and so they're you know they're uh, really energy poor and they import uh about 40 percent europe does of of their oil and natural gas from from uh, russia and germany does even more i think over fifty percent, you know, from Russia, mm-hmm. and uh, so they just absolutely uh, killed their uh, energy uh, uh, resources. Uh, they're doing this also at a time, of course, they're going into a winter season, and so. And Germany has been a real piker when it comes to not contributing to NATO, and 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 basically, even when other European countries and Britain were supporting. Ukraine with weaponry, they had to they had to fly around German airspace because Germany didn't want to offend Putin.
1: Hmm. So
4: it's just really it's just really a terrible situation. Meanwhile, of course, we've killed our I say we the current administration with the cancellation of Keystone Pipeline and and you know, then at the same time giving um, 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 Nord Stream 2 a pass in, in Russia uh, to I mean connect Russian gas with uh, Germany and so on. It's it's all about this energy craziness centered on climate as being the greatest existential threat, mm. and, and it's just insane.
1: You know, a uh, professor. Uh, you know, we're imposing sanctions right now. The, we're seeing, I'm sure, Putin's uh, cash flow is going up, up, up with all the things that you cited. But if we just decided to reverse course and decided to have the Keystone Pipeline go back and get energy independence, which I think we could probably do pretty much on a dime. It might take a year, but I think we could probably uh, get, get back to being energy independent and a uh, exporter of oil. Uh, that would give us greater power around the globe and greater power internally. So it uh, would literally reduce the, the, uh, the threat that we have with uh, what's going on with Putin.
4: Well, that's the, that's the rational thing, and we keep hearing, you know, everybody. I think you know, most rational people agree with that that we could, you know, all these all these problems are self-imposed. Europe's problems with energy are self-imposed because because they've got a lot of shale and they could they could produce oil and they could certainly not kill our nuclear uh, uh, resources and so on. And 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 we were energy not only energy dependent we independent we were energy dominant under under trump and and uh, those were the good days so all of this we looked at how a few people how how a few radicals can can uh of course biden to reverse these policies would be would be a, you know acknowledgement of how how absolutely crazy it's been and uh, you know he had even talked the other day and mentioned how uh you know we need to uh, be patriotic and support high oil prices. Well there's nothing there's no reason for the there's no we're not uh you know the inflationary effects of oil have nothing to do with patriotism. Right. They have to do with stupid policy. And uh and and uh as long as we have these, these bums in office, uh I don't think they're gonna switch because it would be a recognition of their own feckless reckless and destructive
1: programs. Yeah, thank you, Professor. I totally agree with that. Out of curiosity, uh, the uh, Russians have uh, focused on capturing Chernobyl, which, of course, is the former failed uh, nuclear plant in Chernobyl. Uh, any thoughts on that? What's the significance, do you think?
4: I think very little. I think I think it's uh, really in the news, principally because Chernobyl uh, you know, has that... That great history, of course, you know the Russian people certainly don't want to have an issue with Chernobyl again. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think that that would be that would be a a political nightmare for Russia, not to mention you know for Ukraine. I think what's happening in Ukraine is just is so is so tragic. I don't know there's words for it. Uh, uh, you, you know the, the people there. I can't imagine being in that circumstance where your whole country is being invaded. They say, well, you know, you know, the Russians say, well, it's it's a criminal empire. Well, you we got something pretty close to that in our, in our country, when <laughs> yeah. you know, it's corruptible. The press is, and you got, you know, the Biden incorporated, you know, and their their deals with Burisma and with China and so on. So uh, I think it's what's happening to the see those families in the subways and so on. Uh, it's it's just so sad.
1: So sad indeed. I hope you'll write a column about uh, what's going on in Ukraine and, and, and the impact that our 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 policy has on what's going on because I think so you know in, in many ways we could just reduce the power of Russia and our foreign adversaries simply by making sane con- decisions on on uh, energy.
4: Well, I've got an article actually on that because today I've got an article on the how, how energy in this this this, this stupid craziness about climate change and and how it's impacted uh, European energy, you know, really holding holding Europe hostage? Germany has just been on the bad side of everything on this. They've just been absolutely uh, no no contributor to you know to NATO and uh, and we're not honoring uh, the Budapest Budapest Memorandum of uh, you know nineteen ninety where, you know, Ukraine surrendered thousands of, they had 1,800 nuclear devices that they surrendered. They went to Russia with the understanding that there would be no aggression against them and that others would support them. You know, of course, nobody wants a war. Certainly they don't want American uh, blood, you know, in in Ukraine. But uh, everyone, all the countries have, have really turned their backs on Ukraine, and uh, and Putin isn't going to end there. No. I don't think there's any indication that he will, and and it's it's uh, and then you got China in the wings watching all this, and they of course saw the Afghanistan debacle. So, my God, can we li- can we live another three years of this administration?
1: I know, uh, it's scary stuff. Again, Professor Larry Bell. I want to recommend uh, the book Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier, written by, co-authored with Buzz Aldrin. Also, check out Newsmax.com. Larry Bell's column is on point, and you'll find his latest grassroots movement sows seeds of 2022 dem uh, Dem Demise, we can only hope. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: And Bob, I enjoyed it. I wish these were better times.
1: I do, too, but they will be. Keep, keep on writing, Professor. Thank you. All right, well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I learned a lot and enjoyed it myself. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Great guests on Monday. Mark Shulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCenter.com, will be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries will be with us as well. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.